Hello and welcome to the Albion Obsessed podcast. You join us fresh off the back of our first win in Europe and our first clean sheet of the season. However, we were forced to settle for a point as we faced a frustrating Fulham side who capitalised on some poor officiating and Brighton's poor finishing. But before we get into any of that, let's see who we've got on the show today. We welcome back Dagan. Dagan, my friend, how are you? Ah, Not bad, Tom. Not bad. Keeping things in perspective. I like that, Dagan. Our resident optimist, optimistic as per usual. And we also welcome back Phil. Phil, my friend, thank you for joining us once again. How are you, my friend? Doing very well. Um, yeah, obviously a, a little bit frustrated by by what transpired in the last uh, in the last little while. But uh, but yeah, as Dagan kind of alluded to, I think we do have to just kind of remember that there is a bigger bigger picture to focus on for us. Um, and yeah, I, look, it's great that we are recording Albion Obsessed across three different time zones, um, which has to be some kind of record for sure. Um, so glad to be here. Glad to be making my home debut. <laughs> and we are so <laughs> glad to have you here, Phil. Yet yeah, we've got time zones in what? The States, the UK and Australia. So, you know, it's like, this, as I said this before, it's like the start of a really bad joke. Um, but no, it's absolutely <laughs> yeah. fantastic to get different perspectives uh, on this game, as I'm sure we'll unpick um, as we go forward. Uh, Dagan, it would be wrong of us, I suppose, to gloss over the fact that we have just come off the back of our first win uh, in Europe. Now, of course, unfortunately, we haven't uh, had the time to do a podcast on that, but I'd just love, love to get your thoughts, Dagan, on Brighton's win against Ajax, an Ajax side that were, well, Ajax are going through a, a terrible time uh, at the moment, uh, the worst time in their club's uh, recent history. Um, but still, a win is a win, a clean sheet. So a really good night for the Albion. Indeed, right? I mean, it's it's, it's a historic occasion, clearly. Um, Ajax certainly did not look up for it. And for the most part, we did. It wasn't an extravagantly excellent ex- experience in watching. Uh, but it was it was good enough for three points. And as we just witnessed, that's not a given. Uh, it's certainly not a given in, in Europe. Uh, yeah, it's this game does it to you, right? It's so easy to forget the good and have the recent bad sort of firmly fixed in your mind. Um, all is not lost, though. We 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 were in dire straits in Europe. Now we are in a really really enviable position with our own destiny in our hands. And so, you know, on that front, the the Champions League dream is alive, and, and we've talked about that from the beginning of the season, right? The goal is we think Deserby's target is Champions League. And so one pathway to that is league position and the other is Europa League and, and winning it and getting a trophy. And, uh, you know, I think we talking, you know, talk, talking to folks from other places uh, about us, they expected us to win this group. When I went on the IX pod last week, they expected us to win this group. Um, and I think we're, we're back on the path to doing that. So it feels good. And that's not a lot of, a lot about the game specifically, but I think the, the larger picture is what's really interesting to me and uh, puts me in a good mood thinking, our European dream might continue past these opening six games. Yeah, of course, that that, that really does have to be the dream. And uh, it just so happens, Phil, that our next European game is is against Ajax, um, the, the return leg. Um, Ajax, as we say, they're in a huge moment of transition, um, a really poor 
uh, time. I think they lost over the weekend themselves as well. They were 2-0 up, I believe, and they succumbed to a 5-2 defeat. Um, do you think it's good that we've, uh, we're playing Ajax again so soon um, whilst they're still in this rut? Apologies, uh, unmuted. Uh, yeah, there's absolutely no question about that. Um, you know, I'd, you would you would have to assume that that club is going to turn a corner sooner rather than later. So, yeah, for, for us to sort of get a little bit of that luck, um, it is important. Um, we're probably due, due for that. You know, we, we, we seem to have been hit on the, you know, by the wrong side of karma more often than not this season so far. So... Um, so that's certainly positive. You know, I sort of was thinking going into that first Ajax game, not sort of without calculating how bad they are right now, that if we can just grab four points from these next two games, we put ourselves in a position. Yeah, you, Looking at the situation now, we would have to be absolutely devastated if we can't go go over there and and pick up another three points. I mean there are championship teams that would, you know, um, take care of Ajax pretty comfortably right now. I, I would assume they, they were dreadful the other, the other day. So we have to be thinking really good about our chances going forward. Yeah. I think it's fair to say they were probably one of the worst, uh, teams we've seen at the Amex in a, in a very, very, very long time, yeah. uh, which seems absolutely mad to say, because I was talking about this, you know, with my dad, who, Grew up in the 70s and 80s watching football and the Dutch uh, and Ajax in particular were just such a powerhouse um, in the early 90s as well. Just an absolute powerhouse of a football team. Um, and it's just so strange to see us, you know, playing so well against against a giant in Europe. Um, but uh, we, we, we come away from Ajax now and we look uh, ahead to... Th- the game over the weekend, but to prolong having to talk about it a, a bit longer. Um, the club have just announced that they are have submitted plans, sorry, for a multi-million pound brand new covered fan zone at the Amex. And I think that's a, a fitting to- topic of conversation, Dagan, uh, because the weather over the weekend down in Sussex was uh, pretty abysmal. We saw some of that on the pitch uh, with, you know, the players slipping and falling over. Um, just something, you know, to add to to the stadiums, uh, you know, to build atmosphere. Um, I know you haven't yet seen the Amex in person, but um, still, it's nice to see that the club are investing further in the in the stadium. Well, I mean, the the place looks to be a palace uh, to me. Um, perhaps it's the wrong the wrong word. It's a dirty word around here, but uh, it does. It looks lovely, um, and the new area looks really, 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 really nice. And it seems like it's an area for everyone. Yes. Uh, which that that's exciting, right? We've seen lots of publicity around some of the special clubs and, you know, dining facilities and that's awesome. But it's nice to see that all the folks will have a, a cool fancy hangout um, at the stadium. So I'm hoping maybe, maybe that I'll come visit this summer. Uh, won't be to see a game, but hopefully we'll at least be able to see the Amex and go check out the, the shop. Um, but uh, we're not, yeah, I, I, I doubt it'll be ready so soon. So I don't know what's the anticipated timeline of that project. Do you know? Um, considering they've just put in forward planning permission, and I don't know how things work in the states or in Australia, but we, that could go on for forever. <laughs> um, but, it was know. a road project uh, here that would take that would take quite a while. But 
Building's got. I think that I think that's happening every, everywhere right now, Tom. Uh, <laughs> particularly down under because getting things shipped here since COVID, not easy, not easy. <laughs> yeah. But um, but yeah, and and just sort of adding to to all of that. I, you know, I obviously, as some of the listeners will know, I was able to get there for the Bournemouth game a little bit earlier on in the season. Um, that's my first and only experience at the Amex and the weather could not have been better. So for me to speak to the experience of fans that, that obviously turn up early and might want to consider hanging around a little bit afterwards as well, I can't really speak to what that experience will be like, you know, in sort of the middle of December or, or January, to be fair. Um, but look, I, there's there's no question that there's a there are issues getting to and from the the, the venue, particularly from, um, you know, I, I got there particularly early because I wanted to soak in everything about that day. So I didn't have any issues getting a train to the Amex from Brighton. Um, but even still, I, I stuck around after the Bournemouth game for a drink, um, you know, in the, the concourse section around, I, I was sort of on the lower eastern side. Um, I, I was hoping that, that that traffic might die down to get back in into town. I reckon I sort of waited close to an hour before actually exiting the stadium. Um, and I was met with a pretty hefty queue to get down in the train. And I probably waited a good a good half an hour. I saw some of the the footage and um, and comments and reporting of what happened after the Ajax game the other night, um, and it's it's just so unfortunate when you know people and and particularly marginalised members of the community are put in dangerous situations by idiots, um, you know, that want to hang around and, and cause trouble um, as people are trying to wait to get onto a train and if there is something at the stadium that can encourage people to hang around and just ease some of that traffic and turn and, and, and create a, a situation where you've got a full stadium and, but maybe a lot of those people are, are sort of waiting an hour or, or even two hours till afterwards to get on a train and the train service and that situation is, I know its own problem, but I, th- I think that that, it can only help. And I'm, I'm talking, you know, Matt, let's put in a sports bar. These are all people that turn up to these games are sports fans. So let's make sure that there are screens everywhere that are showing all the other games going on, other sports, whatever. Let's try and encourage people to go to a sports bar in this fan thing afterwards. Let's set up some food stalls as well. We've got this incredible Japanese influence now at um, at Brighton in the last couple of years. So, you know, let's have some Japanese fusion uh, venues and restaurants put in. Let's try and create ways to encourage people to hang around because we, I, I shared that, um, that athletic uh, story last week that ranked the, the 20 venues in the Premier League and, and the Amex sat at 16, which surprised me because I had a, a great experience going to the game. But the main fault on it was that there is, there's nothing around it. You can't go to any pubs or clubs afterwards or anything like that. So let's create that opportunity for fans. Tom, Tom, what does it mean to you? So I think I agree with Phil, you know, it's, um, I think a lot of the, 
opposition fans always cite, oh, yeah, fans are leaving in on 80 minutes or 85 minutes or whatever. Um, the biggest issue that the Amex has is its location, um, and which which obviously can't be helped. The train service is notoriously poor. Uh, that is often out, well, that is outside of Brighton and Hove Albion's control. Uh, the park and ride, you often have to wait a good hour in, in the queue. And I've done that in the pouring rain. I've done that in the scorching heat. And it's uh, not fun, particularly either way. So as Phil says, you know, it's all about trying to get people to stay behind afterwards. And people will say, well, you know, Dick's Bar's open, the concourse is open. But it would just be nice to have like an actual purpose-built facility for fans to go to. And as Phil says, you know, if you can get some cafes, restaurants in there that are open to everyone, because obviously children, you know, people under 18 can't go into Dick's. But if you could get a sports bar in there with, you know, as, as Phil says, showing football, everything else, um, and then get some cafes, restaurants in there. It will just encourage people to stay behind, perhaps, um, which could ease congestion when you're trying to get on on the park and ride or you're trying to get on the train home because it is a pain in the ass. You know, it, it, it's a real struggle and you can really see and understand why people leave early. Um, and it's often met with a lot of, um, you know, uh, Brighton fans don't like it, opposition fans mock it. So it, it's a tough one. Um, but, you know, everything, anything and everything the club can do to sort of create a better, you know, pre-game experience, post-game experience can only be a good thing. Um, so I'm all for it. I'm all for it. So that's uh, that's my view on it anyway. So let's um, let's talk about the uh, the Fulham game. We've uh, filibustered long enough. Uh, <laughs> it's time to <laughs> face this uh, this draw, which to many is feeling almost like a bit of a defeat. Um, whether that's um, just because of the nature in which uh, we conceded a goal, but we'll, we'll get onto that in just a bit. Let's start, Dagan, where we always start. Let's talk about the starting eleven because there were six changes for Brighton um, from the Europa League win against Ajax. It seems to be Brighton's thing at the moment to, to continually interchange personnel. So in came Igor, Webster, Dehoud, Lalana, Baleba, and Ferguson. Out went Veltman, Van Hecker, Milner, Gilmore, Fatty, Jao Pedro. Uh, Dagan, were you surprised uh, by the starting eleven? I mean, I must admit, I was a little bit surprised that we didn't see Fatty and Jao uh, Pedro. Um, but that was just me. Was there any surprises in that starting eleven for you? Or did you expect the level of changes that we got? Well, I, th- I think first going into the Ajax game, I posed the question here is a back three, a possibility. Um, it took an extra game to see it, uh, but we saw it. And it just felt like from a personnel standpoint, um, that might be the way to go. You had mentioned that you thought Webster was better in a back three. Um, and we got to see a little bit of that yesterday. Uh, so, in, you know, in terms of the guys who were there, that back three, I think, made a lot of sense. Um, a little surprised to see Lalana get a start, but not disappointed. Um I was surprised not to see either Fatty or Pedro, as you said, in the starting lineup. Um, and, and, and dis- again, the, 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 the Pascal gross question. Uh, I think, I think Billy Gilmore has been our best all around midfielder this year. And I think we have looked the worst when he's not out there. Um, I know we scored without him, but he really is a commanding presence. And so, you know, whenever he's not in the, in the starting lineup, I, I worry a little bit. I thought Baleba acquitted himself really, really well. Um, we'll talk more about Gross later. He, he, I think, 
in possession, that was the worst I've seen him look, barring the one really, really beautiful pass uh, that, that led to the goal. Uh, and that's, you know, what he gives you is that elegant pass that will that will come. Uh, but yeah, the, the lineup itself, I, yeah, I guess I have more to say about the changes and the timing of the changes perhaps than I do about the starting 11, because I think at this point we can accept the starting 11 is all over the place and changes to a great degree. Um, maybe too much. It's funny. I'm hearing that from a lot more like fans of other clubs that I'm friends with. They're saying like, what is the deal? Like you guys are changing way more than everybody else, uh, including teams that are also playing in the middle of the week. So that's just an interesting point of discussion. Yeah, I, you are spot on actually because um, uh, Villa supporting friends of mine uh, aren't, you know, they're saying the same thing, that Villa aren't rotating anywhere near uh, as much as we are. Um, it was interesting, Phil, to see the lineup um, and a bit of head scratching moment, kind of like trying to figure out who was playing where. But uh, we went for a back three, and this was like I think it was only the first time under Roberto De Zerbi that he has gone for his own version of a back three. Uh, he started with a back three in his first game against Liverpool um, way back last year, but that was because more of he was a, con- a continuation of Graham Potter's style of football um but do you agree with Dagan Phil that this is probably the the best thing to do that you know play players in their actual positions rather than trying to shoehorn in uh, in players out of position yeah exactly I, look I think Dagan's said most of it um but you know when you don't have any genuine fullbacks to pick like <laughs> you have to adjust um and when I came on the the podcast the first time I sort of gave Deserby a lot of credit for his ability to adjust in game. Um, and it was good to see some of that here as well, uh, just in terms of a, a pre-game strategy. Um, you know, at the end of the day, he, there, there are sort of implications every now and again that certain selections are done uh, in some form of protest to who we should potentially look at picking up in the next window. Uh, at the end of the day, Roberto Deserbi's job is to coach the team and to pick who he thinks can can win this game. But you know, on top of managing players' loads throughout a, 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 a stupidly busy footballing schedule, uh, that's not a problem just in football, but in a lot of leagues and sports around the world where it's just all about greed these days, and you're asking far too much of, of players. Um, but at the end of the day, Deserby's job is is you know is to go out there and try and win win games of, of football and and manage his players. Um, and I think this is a it's a clear sign for even you know the uh, the most basic of fans like myself to to understand that um, you know that he's you know doing the right things in terms of making those adjustments as necessary. I'm, I'm sure we'll get to it. It, it, it looks like Purvis Estupinian might be back sooner rather than later. Um, perhaps even this weekend. I'm not, I haven't seen the latest update on that, but, um, and then maybe it changes again. Understandably, he's an incredible fullback, but right now we just don't have the cattle to play that formation. Yeah, you're spot on. And um, just before we uh, move into the first half, I just wanted to give out a couple of shout outs. Um, Dagan, you mentioned Adam Lalana. He got his first start since mid-September. Uh, we also had Pascal Gross's 200th Premier League appearance, which he obviously marked with a uh, an assist um, 
but a below par performance, which we'll talk about in a bit. And I also just want to quickly give out a shout out to Jakob Moda, who um, played half an hour for our Premier League two side, our under 21s, on his road to recovery. He will be uh, an asset going forward, I'm, I'm sure. Um, you know, looked really promising under Graham Potter. Uh, interested to see what he will do under Roberto De Zerbi. Now, skipping back ahead to the formation, because I really liked this formation. In that first half, especially, I was I was loving it. Uh, you know, the back three was like a 3-2-4-1 or a 3-2-2-3. I, I don't know, numbers. But for me, the back three really worked. We saw Igor and Webster making runs from, you know, from the defence, which played played really well to their strengths. And I thought those two in particular probably, you know, could come out of that game saying we played really well. Uh, a fantastic uh, interplay in the first half, Dagan. Some really, really nice football. And it, we did have a host of chances that Brighton were very guilty of being very wasteful. Uh, Belaber had a couple of chances himself. Leno making a good save early in the first half um, after a curling effort. Adingra went close a couple of times. Matoma had a, a moment in the first half where his shot went well, well, well wide. Um, so Brighton, Dagan, uh, well, they they were playing fantastic in the first half. It was very similar to Ajax. Unfortunately, though, uh, talking about similarities, it, it had a similarities with a Graham Potter performance in that Brighton were creating so many chances, but were just either not being clinical enough or when they were getting into those positions, not making the right choices. What did you make of a Brighton's attacking play in that first half? Yeah, I thought I thought the similarity was we were really deliberate. Um and just waiting and moving the ball side to side and making those extra passes and not trying to force a ball through before an an opportunity and an opening appeared for us. Um, the part where we got, I think, a little wasteful, maybe once we scored, uh, is is in just attempting sort of deep, low percentage shots uh, when there really wasn't a need to. Um, but yeah, I thought I thought we were more patient. And the the one that stands out to me especially is the the really nifty ball that Lalana played from the end line over to Adingra and somehow he just couldn't gather it uh and left it sort of easy for Leno to to stop and I was I, yeah, that one yeah, of of the ones you'd like to have back, I think that's the one that would most often result in a goal if you had to play it over again. I think uh, if you play out that cross ten times, it results in a goal about eight times. It yeah. was it was fluky that it didn't end up in a goal. Yeah, it was it was almost like a Dingra was scared to head it. Um, I don't know if that was because of you know being where he was in the pitch, but that cross from Lalana was absolutely beautiful. It was, and that's what Adam Lalana gives you. Um, a lot of fans, you know, often very critical of Adam Lalana because he comes in once every two months and plays a game. But when he's on the pitch, he just, for me, he's almost head and shoulders above everyone. Um, and I know I'm jumping forward a little bit, but I would have absolutely loved to have seen him and Ansu Fati on the pitch together. <laughs> yeah. Because I've, I think it's often been said about Lalana and, you know, very recently about Fatty that they just seem to be at a level above everyone else. They almost see the game, you know, a step before everyone. So having them on, the two of them on the pitch at the same time, 
um, really would have excited me. And, uh, you know, I thought there was some fantastic performances out there, Phil, in the first half. The Hood looked fantastic. Lana, very, very good. Belaba, really good with his defensive duties. Um, but for, uh, you know, the first half of the first half, um, Brighton particularly wasteful in front of goal. What did you make of the opportunities that, that Brighton were, were fashioning? Were you were you happy? Were you positive that they were still creating those opportunities, even if they weren't perhaps testing the keeper enough? Yeah, they they obviously made some opportunities, um, but we we probably we've probably come to expect that at times they they make they create even more opportunities, um, and I, I still think like we, we are one of the most patient teams um, in attack. Sometimes I feel like we're just a little bit too patient. Um, I sort of threw that out there after the Bournemouth game as well. You know, sometimes just put the ball in the box and see what happens. Um, and I, I totally understand does Zerbi sees the game on a far deeper level than we ever will. Um, but sometimes I, I just, you know, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. And sometimes I just feel like we, we probably leave, we, 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 there, there are even more opportunities out there that we, turned down um, by, you know, going back and, and waiting for the perfect opportunity, which event ultimately sometimes just doesn't arrive, um, you know. And I, I look, it's just this is football. There are going to be days where you are just absolutely clinical in front of goal and, and there are going to be days where you, you create some great chances and and somehow the ball doesn't end up in the in the back of the net. I suppose I I was just thinking as we were chatting through there as well, um, workshopping something here. But, I mean, obviously there's this dire need for an extra fullback in this squad undoubtedly. But I, I still think that we're just, you know, we've got problems with our engine room um, and, you know, losing Caicedo and McAllister in the same window is going to do that. Um, maybe this is a better formation for us. Maybe if we're just going to have more bodies in the middle of the park, it's going to help support Belieber and, um, you know, Dahoud and, and guys that are still trying to get their their feet un, underneath them. Maybe that's just a better way for us to operate currently. That's not to say that we can't go out and find, you know, find a, a really quality midfielder in January, but maybe that just is a, a better way for us to go right now. Do you guys have thoughts on that? I, I actually think that's a spot on because I think when you looked at, at the players out there, Dahoud, Gross and Lalana in particular are quite similar players. They're very silky, very skillful. And out of the four central midfielders we had, only one of them is what you would call uh, uh, you know, a, def- a central defensive midfielder. And as we've discussed on the show before, um, you know, he's not in the same vein as a Caicedo. It's more of a Basuma who still does the defensive duties well, um, but it's just a different style of uh, different style of play, and I think you might be right, Phil. Sometimes maybe if you can't control that midfield as well, because we've lost, you know, our double pivot in McAllister and Caicedo, maybe the way to combat that is to just stack the midfield a little bit more and play with a back three. And all the time that we haven't got a right back and a fit left back, you know, maybe the back three is is the way to go. I know it's perhaps not to Zerbi's preferred style or formation, but it, it looked like it was creating opportunities and it looked like it worked and it was pretty solid defensively, to be honest. What are your thoughts, Dagan? Well, I would just say it, 
it seemed to not require as much dynamism from the midfielders. They could sort of stay in their own respective lanes a little more um, and weren't obviously weren't stretched as much defensively in terms of the lateral space, um, which seems to not be a strength this year. Baleba helps with that some, um, but Gross just isn't a guy who's going to cover a ton of, of ground. So having three as opposed to two in the middle of the park to Phil's point. No, I think there's, I think there's some credence to that. And what was noticeable yesterday is it was really clear. Gross did a lot of dropping back when either one of the two outside, you know, defenders would get forward. Um, and so that space was filled and we had some protection. Um, and I, I, you know, talking about Gilmore not being out there, I, I thought Dahoud really acquitted himself well, um, particularly in the, the early part of the game. He made some really nice turns on the ball. Um, and some nifty moves to to sort of open up space. Uh, so I was I was I was impressed and happy to see him have a good what appeared to be a good game. Um, and he he wasn't getting you know bodied off the balls. I think people have been concerned about his stature, but I thought that didn't that didn't appear an issue in this game for whatever reason. No, it certainly didn't. As I say, it's a. Uh... I think Fulham were really poor in that first half. We had a lot of possession and uh, we made the shape that we had out there as as effective as we could. Um, now, unfortunately, we can't really progress any further without talking about the first half controversy, controversial moments there uh, in regards to a, well, what, in a move that is illegal in rugby, um, that, which was an elbow um, committed uh, by the player who would turn out to score Fulham's goal later on. Um, but Dagan, I mean, it's um, it's violent conduct. He, the player, the Fulham player, leads in with the elbow. He clocks Pascal Gross around the head. And the referee, Michael Salisbury, doesn't even blow up uh, for a foul. Uh, VAR, who you'd expect to intervene here, um, see also no issue with it um checked and cleared tom checked and cleared yeah, uh, I, um, what, like what are your thoughts dagan before i um i go off on a bit of a rant what so i didn't notice this yesterday but what was nearly as bad as the elbow was the was the knee strike into gross's uh sort of outer thigh that just had no semblance of an attempt of anything other than delivering punishment. Um, yeah, I, I I don't see how anybody watches that back and thinks. I mean, given where the contact occurred and the the grazing nature of it, had Gross not backed up, it just would have been a direct body to body hit instead of you know sort of a glancing blow to the degree it was. But his elbow had no reason to be there. Like this is not close to a natural position when, you know, people were talking about, Oh, he was going to kind of put his arm. And I was like, I, no, you, like if you want to do that, you're going to extend your arm. You're not going to throw your elbow at shoulder height. Um, yeah. It, yeah. Uh, Michael Salisbury was the VAR official in our game against Spurs last year with five incorrect decisions. Uh, yeah. I'm just going to leave it at that. It, it. I wish it was more surprising, but it's no longer surprising, right? Uh, and and yeah, it it takes a little joy out of the game. All of those things. 
officiating in nearly every sport is bad. I think the thing that gets me, and you guys alluded to this earlier, is the fact that, again, we can't hear what they're saying. We can't hear what the conversation is. There's no transparency. Um, And it would be so easy to do it that way. And the fact that the Premier League isn't taking those steps, um, other than telling us that guys are protecting their mates by, you know, not going over their head to change a call in the field is really all we need to know. But it's like, it doesn't seem like anything's being done to actually fix that issue. Um, yeah. Uh, I'll just stop there. I, uh, before we go back to you, Tom, um, I play lower grade Aussie rules footy down here, like very low grade. And I, there were times even last season where I have to say to the umpire uh, at a, a stop in play or whatever, this is division three. We understand you're not going to see everything that happens, all the, the new, all the, the minor things that might happen in a game, but at the very, you know, the basic necessity is that you guys make sure that the game is safe out there, that players aren't going to get hurt and, and that you help to manage and control the game in a way that is going to, hopefully avoid incidents that put players safety at risk and a professional referee absolutely failed in that mission in this case. And, and Phil, just before I, I do rant, we were talking off air about the, uh, the, the rugby union world cup at the weekend between New Zealand and South Africa. Um, you know, we saw in that, uh, in that case, there a really clear and concise refereeing performance communication was spot on it was very clear uh, why the referee sent off uh, the, the New Zealand player um, about what what he had done you know and, and he that the right call had been made and throughout all of that you could hear every single word between the TMO and and the referee Phil we've said it on this podcast many 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 times but there surely there is a lot of things that football can learn from rugby yeah, and it's interesting because I come from a world down here as a sports journalist where I watch NRL, rugby league, AFL, um, even the A-League, men's and women's, um, you know, football down in this country. And the broadcast has access to the comms that happen in the, it's called the bunker in rugby league. It's the TMO in in rugby, of course, as well. Um it's the, there's the score review in AFL, whatever it's called, you can hear the person in that room um, processing that decision. They're not going to make the right decision all the time. At the end of the day, there is still, there is still the opportunity for for human error to take place in those moments. Um, But at the very least you hear the comms and that, that can just, it, it makes so much difference um you know when when the the the, in the rugby what what they've been able to sort of master and and the ref did a the ref in the middle of that rugby final did a really good job of explaining to the captain mic'd up of course as well uh how that decision was made and why and half the time the captain doesn't care but it's it's allowing the fans to 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 hear what has happened and I don't know which broadcast you guys had as well, but um, you know the broadcasters are then able to chip in as well and say 
this is what happened and why they are privy to the rule book in, in ways that the average fan are not. At the end of the day, most uh, people that watched that game understood why the decision was made. That is, that's the basic level of a requirement, if, if you ask me. And it, it's just baffling that the Premier League haven't got there. Yeah, it's uh, incredibly, incredibly frustrating. And normally, um, I would normally, you know, sit back and just sort of almost chair and I'll be an obsessed podcast, keep the conversation going. But without Aaron here to to just, you know, <laughs> explete and say it how it is, I, I'm going to I'm going to do it because I am flipping fuming. I almost said a, a naughty word there, but I chose not to. I am just I'm so angry. How in God's green earth can an official who is paid that much money m- miss that? But more importantly, I could, I can, I can understand. You know, as a referee, you've got to have eyes everywhere. So I can get it. You know, the referee didn't see it. Maybe if he did, he needs to be fired because that is unacceptable. But what irks me more, I think, is VAR because, for the love of God, if VAR isn't there to then say to the referee. You need to see that again because, you know, Paulinho there, he's just elbowed Pascal Gross in the head. You need to look at that again. VAR didn't intervene or if it, well, it it checked, but for some reason (laughs) that I can't even begin to fathom, they thought that was acceptable. They didn't stop play. They stopped it in the second half whenever Fulham, you know, players went, oh, my head, oh, I need to have a lie down. When obviously Fulham were trying to stop Brighton from pouring forward and were going down, they'd stop the game. But when it actually full-on elbowed to the head, the game wasn't stopped. It's the inconsistency. It's the complete and total ineptitude of the officials, the ineptitude of the VAR official. Because at the end of the day, this isn't VAR's fault. VAR is just a system that is in place. It's the people behind the desk that are not fit to do their job. And a PGMOL whatever apology doesn't give us anything. Doesn't get points back. It 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 just doesn't do anything. Um, so it's just another incredibly frustrating moment. And we've just happened, as they you've said, Dagan, this particular referee, Michael Salisbury, is the reason we got so buggered over against Spurs last season because he's inept. He's completely incapable of doing the job at this level. And, you know, the worst part is the FA, the PGMOL, they won't do anything. You know, they'll go, oh, we're sorry, but no one will be held accountable, you know. And it just, it's it's incredibly frustrating. And then you factor in the fact that that's the player that scored their equaliser when he shouldn't have been on the pitch. And it's just utterly rage-inducing. Um, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just so fed up of these officials it's supposed to be the best league in the world and the officials are just so awful so awful Um, and then the premier league had the gall to to send out that tweet after the game that brighton are the first team ever to have both scored and conceded a goal across the first 10 games of a of a season and it's like are you guys kidding (laughs) honestly it's, it's not quite as bad though as fulham putting out a video today of, yeah. of, you know, and then including the elbow in the little compilation. I was like, how utterly classless is that? I would be embarrassed if Brighton did that. I'd be utterly embarrassed. Um, 
But let's let's move on before I burst a blood vessel. Um, let's talk about the goal because uh, we know that was a, a fantastically well taken goal, uh, Dagan, by Evan Ferguson, who's looked uh, a little bit off the boil. Um, you know, since uh, you know having such a fantastic game uh, against Newcastle, um, there were moments, uh, as Phil has already alluded to, where I was begging Adingra to put the ball in the box because you've got this big, powerful, physical striker in Evan Ferguson, and we weren't really utilising that to our advantage. But in the end, uh, it was a fantastic piece of defensive covering from Igor, who picked uh, the ball up, drove the ball forward, laid it off to Gross, who played in. Evan Ferguson, who scored an absolute beauty into the bottom-hand corner. Uh, what did you make of the build-up, and what did you make of the goal? Well, I mean, it was it, like it was a well-earned and and fitting sequence that Igor really initiated the play because I thought he was a real standout in this game, and uh, that individual effort, not only to win the ball, but then to to basically carry it until he drew a defender. And then by virtue of doing so opened up the the next sort of passing sequence. Um, and then, you know, you can, you can look feckless uh, and attack, uh, but one little moment can change, can change everything. And I mean, what, what a first touch and what a finish from Ferguson. Uh, I think I remarked in the, in our group chat when, when that happened, he reminds me so much of Harry Kane. Um, and you can see how that comparison is made uh, because, you know, really everything he does, but it's, it's that clinical finishing. And I saw it was posted today and I can't think of what, what outfit posted the stat, but Ferguson is now leading all five major leagues in highest percentage of shots on target with at least, I think 15 shots or something. 72% of his shots this season have been on target. Uh, that's staggering. Um but again, it's just, you know, that's what you want your striker to do is to, to put it on frame. And uh, there he just he tucked it away so neatly. That's that's at least his second sort of left footed goal from from distance that I can think of this year. And just having that capability just makes him that much more dangerous. So, yeah, moment of class, moment of class is what I keep hearing in this sport. And that was that was the one shining moment for the for the day. So he just I, he just. He he does an incredible job of, of making the craft of playing striker so simple. And, you know, it particularly for, for the average fan as well, it's exactly what we need. It's a no-nonsense striker that gets the ball in opportunities and he takes his shot. That's what we want to see. And in this case, it was just it was just so beautifully simplistic the touch and then the finish we've seen moments early, earlier on in the season where another one of our young rising star players, Ansu Fati has had those moments and he's just tried one too many touches or he's tried to do too much with it. And there, those are moments that he will learn from um, take a leaf out of Evan's book, have those opportunities and just get a shot away. Um, you know, we might speak to, other moments as well in, in the second half where if, if Ferguson has an opportunity, he is going to take it. Whether the keeper saves it or not is a different story. But again, you you miss 100% of the shots you don't take and Ferguson just has a way of, of not trying to 
overplay his hand in front of goal. And that's what's so great about it. That's why he's going to score so many goals in this league if he sticks around. Um, he's just, it, it's so it, it's so great to have Ferguson on our, on our team. Let's hope that we can keep him around for many years to come. Um, and he's, he's going to score so many goals if he just continues to have that attitude and the right pieces are put around him. 100% Phil. Um, I think uh, there's some stats I saw. Uh, the first one, out of the 23 goals scored by teenagers in the Premier League in the calendar year of 2023, Brighton have accounted for 15 of them. That's 65%. Uh, and and there's another one I've seen as well about Evan Ferguson has now scored 10 goals this calendar year. Um, and he's the youngest player to do that in a calendar year since a young Wayne Rooney. Um, who went on to have obviously a very, very, very good career as a Did player. Did he go okay? <laughs> uh, yeah, he was all right. I mean, he's a pretty rubbish manager, but um, <laughs> coach. Uh, but you know, he's a he's a was a very good forward, I hear. Um, so yeah, I mean, there was a moment as well um, later on in the half where Ferguson created a chance out of nothing. I think it was a poor touch by the the Fulham defender, and Ferguson just pounced in, got the ball turned had a shot and it was as saved by Leno but as you say Phil yeah. it was on target and you know you've got to just sometimes just take that take that opportunity and I do think Brighton have over the last few years been very guilty of trying to walk the ball in yeah. uh, at times overplaying taking two main touches trying to score what you call the perfect goal and I like how Evan Ferguson has no time for that <laughs> he just wants to get the ball and have a shot um, and the stats about how, how many shots he's had on target is quite extraordinary. Um, what a talent he is. He's a, he's very, very good. And I'm glad to see he's back amongst the goals. Um, Brighton went into halftime 1-0 up. I think it's worth just mentioning here that, you know, Fulham did look better after we scored. They were the better team. Um, or certainly they seem to have woken up. Um, and Brian certainly did take their foot off the gas, but it was Lewis Dunk who had the first real chance of the second half. Uh, Lewis Dunk on set-piece duties, Dagan. Um, we've moaned and groaned a little bit about that, but he clipped clipped the bar. Um, so it was nice to see that the captain stepping up, taking those set-piece routines, uh, and he went really close there, to be fair to him. Yeah, I mean, I guess he pulls rank, uh, the situations, because it really did look like DeHood wanted to take that that first, that first one of the second half. Um, and I was kind of eager to see him take one cause he just, he has some, some finesse, uh, but dunk. Yeah. That, that ball sank like a stone. I thought it was going to drop in. Uh, it was, it was, it was the closest of the attempts we've seen this year that I can recall. Um, so he's got one in him. Surely eventually law of averages says that one of them's going in, but I don't, <laughs> what was the conversation I was I was happening? We were we were about to walk out the door, and I think Kennedy was surprised that Dunk was taking the kick, knowing that he's just the big center back. Um, and I think she asked, "What like what does he usually do when he takes these?" <laughs> and my response was, "Hits the wall." <laughs> and uh, but this was a little better, but. Yeah, I guess that's second on the list, maybe third on the list of chances that we look back on and think, oh, what could have been? But alas, was not. Yeah, I think he's... Go on, Phil. Oh, sorry, Tom. Yeah, it it was a good strike, obviously. It's still just... The way he hits it, it, 
it all seems a little bit too gimmicky for my liking. Like surely there is someone in this team that can just step up in those moments and give it a good nudge. There has to be a, a, a better alternative. I know he, I know he went very close. Don't get me wrong. Um, but he, he's had what three or four of those shots in probably the last five games, I'd say. And um, that was by far the closest. I think he's just living off. Uh, he scored a free kick a couple of years ago against Liverpool. Mm. Uh, Liverpool was setting up the wall and he asked the ref if he could take it. The ref said yes. So he just literally just put it put it around the wall. They just weren't ready. And then he did it again against West Brom. Um, and there was a whole furore about the, the referee there because it, it went in, but the referee didn't give it. But no, he's living off those two free, uh, free kicks. Uh, but it used to be Alexis McAllister, you know, mm. or Pascal Gross. Um but as you say, Dagan, maybe he's just pulling rank, and he just feels like you know, if if the Fulham team aren't set, then he'll uh, he'll get in there and he'll um, have a go, as it were. Um, now, I don't know if it was the weather. I don't know if it was a bit of fatigue, be it mental or physical, um, or even just a bit of good old fashioned arrogance. Uh, but in the second half, Brighton were very poor in possession, in my opinion seemed to really struggle to keep the ball. And it was yet another mistake in possession, yet another quick turnover that cost Albion their lead. Uh, Pascal Gross played in a really poor ball to Belaba, who uh, went down, um, you know, many fans would say too easily. Uh, Fulham, you know, found the space in the box. Dunk wasn't close enough to the player. And the man um, who shall not be named... Uh, the man who shouldn't have even been on the pitch scored what was admittedly a, a very lovely goal. Phil, um, once again, we're seeing Brighton punished for sloppiness in possession. Um, I think I've mentioned it on the podcast over the last couple of weeks. I've seen a stat. Brighton are one of the worst teams um, in that regard, losing the ball and conceding a goal. It's um, I can't remember where where I saw it, what, how many, what the percentage points were. It was ridiculously high. Brighton turnover leading to goals. Um, and yet we've seen another one. What did you make of the uh, the Fulham goal? Yeah, that points off turnover is the the buzzy stat in the, the game of Australian rules football that we play down here. And it, it's certainly uh, appropriate uh, when it comes to Brighton as well. But I mean, that look, that's going to happen when you, when you have so much possession as well. So I think we we might need to just grade that stat out in according uh, in accordance to what a team's overall percent, uh, you know uh, time in possession is, but in saying that you know it's it is the the way that we normally get um, goals con- conceded on us trying you know trying to get a little bit too fancy playing out of the back. Um, we all love this style of football. It it creates action clearly the premier league likes it they they love the fact that we've scored and conceded in in 10 straight games to start the new campaign um in this case it you know it didn't quite come off um yeah i i suppose slightly bigger picture in this game it's just once again we've created a a new way of not winning a game of of football because normally like in recent memory, the the problem for us has been starting really slowly and then giving ourselves too much to do in this, in, in second halves, particularly across the last maybe month and a half. Um, In this case, 
we went into the sheds up and normally when you go in, in, in at halftime, you have a, have a reasonable amount of confidence that the better manager in those sheds is going to be Roberto De Zerbi and he's going to make the better adjustments um, going out into the second 45. And for whatever reason, we just, we, we came out looking half asleep, which is just, it's unlike us. Um, and, and, and that, that's what was so disappointing about this. Um, and obviously Pascal Gross, he sets up the goal in this case, it was a, a pretty poor sort of tip to Belieber who wasn't quite ready for it. And that's how the turnover happened. Yeah, it's it was a disappointing goal to concede, Dagan. And, you know, just on, on, on Phil's point there, you know, we have over the last few months, especially seen better second half performances than first halves. Uh, this was a, you know, turned on its head there. And you said uh, off air that you, you had some some thoughts on sort of like the personnel switches. Do you think that we just lost our momentum um, in in the second half there? I certainly noticed a, a change in momentum when Adam Lalana came off. Um, not saying he is the linchpin, but for me, um, you know, him coming off ch- just sort of just changed how we were playing a little bit. Yeah, I mean, you know, hindsight's what it is. And and sure, there are probably minutes, minute limits for Lalana. Um, for me, Gross needed to come off. He he was he was just not himself for whatever reason. Heavy rain, but a a large number. I don't know what the stats are, but a large number of those giveaways on passes, many of them inexplicable, just like poor touches of the ball. Like it wasn't bad judgment; it was just bad execution. Um, which again is rare from him, uh, but it was persistent in this game, and for me, really noticeable. And we we are seeing it. there's so much rotation of a lot of our players, and many of the guys who are now injured are guys that are less frequently rotated. There are a few guys remaining who continue to not be rotated. Uh, and I'm sort of waiting for the other shoe to drop. Are, are they going to get hurt? And Pascal Gross is one, um, but he looked ripe for injury yesterday because he just he just looked off it. Um, and you know, Matoma is playing a huge number of minutes as well. Those are the two that I feel like sort of and, and dunk, but the demands are a little bit different um, for the defenders, and I feel like they hold up a little better to you know multiple games. Um, these guys that are charged with you know running up and down and up and down and up and down dunk does a lot of you know, sliding and moving side to side and, you know, sliding into space uh, and then has to, you know, run, but we're, you know, we're not, we're not out of possession enough for him to have to work, uh, but so much back there. Um, Yeah. I, I, I thought gross needed to come off and if we could have kept Lalana on and, you know, dropped him, dropped him deeper and had that fatty sub for, for gross, I would have been, I would have been pleased with that. or even had Gilmore just come on sooner for gross. Uh, I would have liked to seen Jao Pedro sooner and perhaps not uh, Facundo. Um, I, I don't bring the Facundo hate though. I, I think he's terrific in a central role, um, but this may not have been the moment for him even in that spot. Uh, but out wide, he's certainly, you know, as we've discussed at nauseum, I think uh, he, he doesn't look as comfortable out wide. Um yeah, so for me, you know, to Phil's point, usually we trust Deserby to make those adjustments, and this time it just didn't seem like he pulled the right strings. Uh, disappointing, 
maybe the rain. I, I don't know, but it was a, it was it was a deflating drop of two points. And I don't think there's any other way to put it. It feels like we dropped two points in a painful, painful way, um, and we can't keep doing it, right? I mean, that's we we are yeah we are in seventh. I guess we'll close with that, uh, right? I mean, we, we look at all the oh we could have we could have we could have, but we're still roughly where we finished last year, uh, despite some disappointing results. You just you just kind of hope that a lot of these growing pains are behind us now because it feels like we've been going through them for two months now. Um, out of necessity, you know, we're trying to bring in a whole bunch of young kids in with these veterans. We don't have anyone in that sort of middle age bracket which can demand playing huge minutes outside of us. You know, Gross is one of them obviously right now. Uh, as you mentioned, Dagan, and unfortunately, he's just the Jenga piece right now because he fills in at, at right back um, and he can also play in the midfield, the two positions that we, um, you know, are, are at the most needy for right now. Um, uh, the other thing, are, are we 100% sure that that's on gross and it's not just a mix-up where he thought that Belieber was going to run onto the ball a, l- a little bit more and, Maybe it's just, again, a communications thing because these guys just aren't playing enough football altogether uh, yet. Yeah, yeah, it could quite possibly be. And, as you know, a lot of fans are sort of asking, <clears throat> pardon me, about the cohesion between the team because how can you possibly build rapport with another player if you're constantly, you know, not playing alongside said player for, you know, a couple of games? Um, as you say, Dagan, Pascal Gross seems to be one of the undroppables. Same with Matoma. Um, although both looked quite, um, you know, below par, shall we say, uh, across the weekend. And I would have liked to have seen Dahoud, Billy Gilmore and Balaba as a as a midfield three and seen what we could do there. And, um, you know, we, we understand that, you know, uh, high risk, high reward nature of De Zerbi ball. Um, but you do feel like sometimes we're, we're shooting ourselves in the foot. Yeah. And Adingra was having a tough time of it. I thought he could have come off sooner than he did um maybe put try fatty out wide job hedger out wide um yeah it's it's weird for as much as we've tinkered there are things that we haven't tried that seem fairly obvious uh and again we're not i'm 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 not deserving but you know all reports are that those two guys can play pretty much any of the front four positions and that was sort of as advertised i know they may not be their main or primary uh but they're capable. We're definitely going to need to see Fatty tried on that right wing spot now, because obviously we don't have Solly March back any, anytime soon. So you'd expect that to happen. We've, we've seen the Buonanotte experiment out there. Uh, I think we're all sort of firmly of the opinion that, that, that his best position is in that 10 role, I think. Um, so I, I would, I, I think we can safely assume that Fatty's going to get his chance, chance on that right, even though he has played more as a as a, as a left winger, um, in terms of his experience playing out wide. Or we'll just keep trotting Bonanate out there, uh, just keep banging our heads against that wall um, that he's going to become our next left footed right winger. I feel like Deserbi is committed to it fully. Um, and the rest of us are just going, no, please make it stop. Uh, Look, we, we haven't tried that Milner and, uh, and Buonanotte right combination yet. So, you know, <laughs> you can get, you can get right off this podcast, Phil, you can go, that, that is unacceptable. That shouldn't be suggested. Shame, shame upon you for uttering those words. 
uh, I have to leave. I have to leave early now. I'm uh, that my pod, my potting is over. I'll let you guys finish up. In all seriousness, I do have to go. Um, so I will let you guys wrap it up. Uh, but cheers and, and thank you. Before always. you go, could I just quickly get your man of the match? My man of the match, uh, though, though in a moment that nearly killed poor Ansu Fati, uh, and, and me as well. Um, I thought all around Igor had the, the best performance, uh, for us, um, initiated the biggest play, but yeah, that right footed flailed near the end where Fatty was just completely uncovered at the far post. Uh, I don't know if you guys caught that moment, but it's pretty high comedy. Fatty just turned like dove and pounded the ground with both hands in exasperation. Um, I was there with him in spirit. Uh, and again, Igor may not have seen him. You know, there were a lot of players in between the two of them, but you know, that, that flail, I felt like if I had to bring the shortcomings of the game down to one thing, we, I mean, how many of those did we have at least a half a dozen? I feel like there were just complete, you know, just fires out of everywhere, like not even close. Um, yeah, but I'm, I'm still, despite that, and perhaps that says that, you know, no one had a really sparkling performance, um, but in a new role in a big spot, I thought he, he showed up and, and played well. Um, we, we, I will say this though, because I, I, I have to be a little critical. We questioned at some point his ability to turn and run as we were talking about him playing left back, and I can't think of who it was at one point yesterday. But he kind of got locked up in space, and it looked, you know, he kind of committed to trying to win the ball, and he got beat. And when he went to turn and run, it was over. I mean, he was nowhere in the picture. Um, so the the starting speed, you know, turning and going is is not there. And I imagine, you know, the questions around why aren't we seeing him at right or excuse me, at left back, um, that that may be a part of it, uh, that his ability to turn and run is just <laughs> akin to that of Adam Webster, perhaps, or James Milner. Um, but he he's he's a, you know, a locomotive going downhill when he's going forward. It's fun to watch. Um, so once he gets that big body moving, he's he's moving and I don't think anybody's getting his way. Uh, so man of the match, Igor Julio, uh, for the first time ever, I'm signing off. Up the Alpine. Thank you very much for your, your time this evening, Dagan. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. Um, Phil, we sort of huffed and puffed as Dagan sort of um, it, it inclined there, uh, but it wasn't to be full-time uh, one-all. Um, same question to you then, Phil. Who who was your player of the match? Who sort of stood out in what was ultimately a bit of a frustrating performance in the end? Yeah, I suppose it's a bit boring. I was going to say... Igor as well, because it, it was his goal. Um, you know, he was the one that sort of created that opportunity. Ferguson does his job. Gross obviously did his job as, as well um, in scoring it. But for mine, it was it was the work of Igor that set that one up. And um, yeah, I, I just thought he was pretty solid back there and, and there, were, there were no other real standouts. So um, for mine, that's where I, I would have given the points as well. But I can understand if people wanted to have Ferguson um, as that alternative as well, because it was a, a pure class finish to put us ahead. He had another opportunity. He put the shot on target. Um, he did his job as well. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's very fair. Um, I'm inclined to agree with both yourself and, and Dagan there. Igor, I think, was, um, as you say, made the goal. Um, and he just had a fantastic game. I also want to give a... a so Igor was my man of the match, but I also do want to give out a couple of shout-outs. I thought Adam Webster had a, a particularly good game. Um, you know, I do think that Adam Webster looks better in a back three. Um, 
I think it plays to his strengths more as he gets to carry the ball out of defence, knowing that there are players there to sort of fill in for him when he does that. Uh, I thought Dahoud and Lalana as well looked uh, looked really strong, um, so that, especially in that first half. So yeah, Webster very very nearly with the winner as well. Yeah, that that header off the line. It was um, you know dire moments. It was um, really unfortunate. Um, but yeah, it's um, it's just it just wasn't to be, and we had to obviously deal with Fulham's theatrics uh, towards the end of the second half, uh, which just was very frustrating to a lot of fans um, to watch, and you can see why they were so frustrated uh, that uh, every time Brighton had the ball, they'd feign injury, go down, and that's again why uh, you know the the head injury protocol needs to probably change. In rugby, you just you get taken off the pitch. You have an assessment, um, you know, concussion assessment or head injury assessment. Maybe that's what needs to be brought into to football to to stop that feigning of head injuries. Because if players know they're going to have to come off the pitch and have an assessment, then I'm pretty sure um, all of that sort of oh my head, I think that'll uh, yeah. eventually stop. That that's absolutely the case uh, in in rugby league down here. Players know that now um, that they will. They will be off the field for the next 15 minutes. Um, if if they show any signs, whether that's stage one, two, three, or four state uh, uh, level of concussion, um, and I, I totally agree that 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 has to be the the norm in in football as well. Um, and you, you know, if if that if Webster puts that goal in, then we exercise two or three demons at the same time, scoring off a, off a set piece, uh, you know, another another player stepping up um, and being on the end of, of a goal and also just Brighton not allowing another three points to slip away in truly bizarre and, and frustrating circumstances because we, we, we speak about it regularly, but for whatever reason, we still, we compete with the best teams in the world and yet we struggle to put away bottom 10 Premier League sides consistently that turn up knowing they're not going to match us um, strategically. They're not going to match us for possession or skill or opportunity creation, but that they're going to be ready to pounce uh, and counter attack and take advantage on turnover. And once again, we, we're clearly the better team and yet we didn't come away with the three points. And unless some, some things change, that is just going to continue to happen. And, and that is the challenge now for Deserby in this group. Yeah. And we've, um, well, with no, you know, we can't bring anyone else in until January. So mm. it's very much a case of, we have to, you know, you know, to work with the hand that we've been dealt as it were, but talking of bottom 10, Premier League sides who um, can't compete perhaps uh, strategically or at least in terms of the possession-based football we want to play. Next up is just the small matter of Sean Dyche's Everton, who, um, well, the last time we played them, it was a bit of a horror show. Um, It still lives rent-free in my head. Now, you know, Phil... This is a game on paper, at least. You would ex- expect Brighton to to go up to go up there and uh, to win, um, or at least you know make a good go of it. Unfortunately, uh, the game isn't played on paper; it's played on grass. And Sean Dyche is notoriously, um, you know, notorious for the way he sets up his sides. Um, 
the, the, the phrase we often use to describe what we saw with Fulham in that second half is shithousery. And uh, <laughs> Sean Dyche is known for his shithousery and the tactics of his teams are as well. Um, so, Phil, although, again, as I say, you'd like to think Brighton should win this game, it's by no means um, you know, a foregone conclusion. Um, so a tough game against an Everton side that have just come off a good result themselves by beating West Ham. Um, a tough result. But Phil, if you had to sort of predict what you think the score could be, what would you go with? Can you see Brighton returning to winning ways? Or, you know, do we just need to guard ourselves a bit, knowing that we could come against a team that are going to sit deep and want to hit us on the counter? Yeah, well, I suppose based off what I just said, there's probably no better test to to see how far we've come in in dealing with with this kind of shithousery uh than than playing an Everton team which has had sort of some some good results um you know they've won three of their last five games um in fact four of their last six including a uh uh that third round of of the FA Cup as well um or was it was it yeah I think it was the FA Cup um so you know this this is a team that isn't as horribly out of form as it was when we played against them last time. We know what happened there. Different set of circumstances. They were desperate. Uh, they, they played like the the team that wanted it more in that game at the back end of last season. We'll see what it looks like this time around. But, you know, we've got an incredible run of games coming up, which included last Sunday, of course. And now we've, we've dropped two points there. You know, it's... Um, it's Everton to come. I think it's Sheffield after that. Um, some other very beatable bottom 10 teams and they're all going to pose a similar challenge. And we just have to to show that we've grown and matured from the team that, um, you know, that seems to con- consistently falter uh, in this scenario. And again, we've been through all these teething problems this year introducing all kinds of new players trying to to work our way through the post Caicedo and McAllister era um we we saw changes to the formation against Fulham it we just we can't continue to see these these growing pains because it it, it is becoming increasingly frustrating for a side that that certainly has top 4 aspirations but what's happening right now in the premier league is that all of the top teams are winning and they are not giving away easy opportunities outside of Manchester city. A couple of weekends ago, pretty much all the top six teams, Villa, Tottenham, Arsenal, Liverpool city, they are all winning games that they are supposed to win. And if we want to be among, you know, can sort of considered among those teams, we just have to be doing the same. And it starts here this weekend. Yep, it certainly does. And I think, um, as you're sort of alluding to there, this is where you prove your mettle. This is where you prove that you are top six uh, worthy, as it were, because we've mm-hmm. gone from being, what, four points off the top spot to now I think it's nine. Um, yeah. So things can change very rapidly. In, in we're still football. in seventh. We're yeah, still, we're still that's, somehow in seventh. That's um, exactly. That's kind of the, the bigger picture thing here. Um Take a leaf out of Tottenham's book. They are playing very average football and they find themselves on top of the Premier League somehow, some way. Uh, it's a great story down under, of course, 
with the manager at the helm there. But let's be real. They're not playing great football and somehow they're finding ways to win. We just have to do the same. Yep. And it's about time we ground out results. So I would I would very much take a 1-0 um, against Everton. I would take it. The scrappiest own goal you've ever seen, I would take it. That would be our first clean sheet in the Premier League in a very, very long time. Since Arsenal in May. Um, wow. So yeah, there you go. Right. Well, all that's left to say then is thank you to Dagan and for Phil for joining me this evening. Well, I suppose it's in the morning for Phil, in the afternoon for Dagan, in the evening for me. Um, And also to let you know that you can check out One Clock Shop if you are into your vintage football shirts. And if you use the code ALBIANOBSESSED, all one word, all uppercase, uh, you can get 10% off over there. Link in the description below. So check those guys out. But all that's left for me to say then is a massive thank you. Don't forget to like, share and subscribe for more content if you haven't done so already, wherever you might be, whenever you may be. We will see you next time. Take care. 